Good to see you today. Got a tissue in my pocket, not because I have a cold, but that song is just destroying me. That is such a powerful song. Good worship this morning. I want to welcome all of you. I want to welcome our, met some of our guests this morning. Glad to have you with us. We'd like to say welcome home uh, to our guests and also those joining us live stream. I just found out this past week we have some folks that are watching us every Sunday in Japan. So, domo arigato uh, to Matt and uh, Kimchi and Chicago. Nice to have you with us and all of our, our live ones out there on the live stream. So today we're continuing, if you're new to us, we've been in a sermon series for all year long entitled Obey Everything. We're looking at the commands of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, and the one we're going to look at today is Jesus' command to obey those who sin against us. Before we do a deep dive into what Jesus says about forgiveness, I want to just mention very quickly four things that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not folly. Forgiveness is not folly. The old saying is, Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on who? Me. I learned that from Gomer Pyle. Uh, yeah, so we may forgive someone, but often they may be repeat offenders. And that doesn't mean we have to let someone take advantage of us. We may set up boundaries. Boundaries, if somebody steals your car, you know, the next time they, they need a ride, you might give them a ride, but not hand them your car keys. So you can set up boundaries. It's not folly. Forgiveness is not shielding. We can't shield people from the consequences of their sin. So there may still be consequences. They may go to jail for grand theft auto, even if we have forgiven them. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. You can't reconcile without forgiveness. But reconciliation, the restoration of a relationship, takes two people. But you can forgive unilaterally, whether or not there is reconciliation in the relationship. And then finally, forgiveness is not tyrannical. It's not tyrannical. Forgiveness, like love, can only be given, it cannot be demanded. So we can't demand that somebody else forgive us. We're responsible for us, not for someone else. So with those caveats, let's take a look at what Jesus taught about forgiveness. I'm going to say four things. Number one, we struggle with forgiveness. We often struggle with forgiveness. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. By the way, on this first point, we struggle with forgiveness. I'm going to ask you to remember this point. In 10 minutes, I'm going to come back and ask you, what was the first point? And you're going to say, we struggle with forgiveness. Okay, so Peter comes up with this number, and he's struggling with this in his mind. Because in the previous verses, as Jesus has been teaching, and remember, we talked about this last week. Remember what we talked about? Of course you do. That when someone sins against you, that you go them in, to them in person, in private, and work it out. So Peter now is naturally wondering, how many times do I have to do this? How much slack do I have to cut to those who sin against me? And he comes up with the number seven, which is a big number. The rabbis of that day taught you had to forgive somebody three times. So Peter's doubling that, adding one, and he comes up with the number seven. It is not part of our our natural inclination to forgive, we tend to keep score. Or as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 13, to keep a record of wrongs. That's the opposite of forgiveness is keeping score. For instance, those who are married and maybe have been married, have you ever had this happen? We're arguing over something, it's minute, but then it escalates a little bit. Next thing you know, somebody reaches back into the archives 
and pulls something out from history and, and throws that in, using it as a little bit of ammunition. Back in the 70s, remember we went to the disco? You made fun of my leisure suit. So you, we, we tend to keep score. Samson is a great example of that in the Old Testament. He was one of the more renowned judges, but he kept score. Uh, he, he would have never reached the number seven in forgiveness. He was going to get married, and he had an argument with his fiancée, so he left her at the altar, went back home to mom and dad. About four or five months later, he cooled off, so he's going back to his fiancée. He's bringing a little goat along as a peace offering. You know, nowadays, it's, more, it's flowers and candy, but back then it was the goat. By the way, guys, uh, what's coming up? Valentine's Day in two weeks. If you want to shake things up a little bit, you might want to go with the goat. But anyway, when he, he comes to find out that she married his best man, she married the best man at the wedding. And so he can't let that go. He can't let it go. And he winds up burning down the Philistines' wheat fields and grain fields and their olive gardens. He just, he just burns them all. Not the restaurant, the olive garden. But uh, he, he burns them all down. He called it a mostly peaceful protest. And he burned them down. And then in turn, the Philistines, mostly peaceful, protested on his ex-wife, and her parents, they burned them down. And things just escalated from there. They wind up putting out his eyes and blinding him. And then he pulls down the two pillars on all these thousands of Philistines to get his revenge. How much more peaceful would it have been for Samson, for his family, for her family, even for his enemies if he had just practiced forgiveness to begin with? Kyle Eidelman in his book, Grace is Greater, writes, We don't want to forgive. We want to rehearse. We replay the terrible moment over and over again because we're convinced if we don't, we're letting the person get away with what they did, when in fact we're just continuing to let them hurt us. All kinds of health issues are connected to chronic anger like heart disease, stroke, blood pressure, arthritis, insomnia, gastrointestinal problems, ulcers, skin and sleep problems. It's been said that not forgiving someone is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. That may be more true than we realize. Okay, so we all know this. We struggle sometimes with forgiveness. Second thing we want to say here, Jesus stretches our forgiveness. So Peter said seven times, verse 22, Matthew 18, 22, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven, or depending on your Bible version, 77 times. So I think Peter went big, but Jesus went even bigger. And the point here is not the number of times. It's not whether it's 77 or 490 but what Jesus is teaching is, you know, an unlimited number of times that forgiveness is our posture toward other people. It's our way of life. As he taught, if you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, the model prayer, we pray this every day. Father, forgive us our debts as, as we forgive our debtors. What we're praying there is that God makes us a forgiving kind of a person. We're committing ourselves to be a forgiving kind of person. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude. It's not hard to rack up that seven number or that 77 number, especially if you happen to live with another human being or two. Somebody has said, what we usually wind up forgiving is the accumulation of small annoyances and irritations. They, they get cumulative. When you read the, the domestic disputes, for instance, in the paper, oftentimes you realize that's just a tipping point, and there's a big backstory there. I pulled four headlines out of our paper, the T.C. Palm. 
from the crime page. Most of these are in Port St. Lucie for some reason, three out of four. But I've got four headlines here. October 6, Port St. Lucie man accused of threatening his lazy son with a baseball bat. 64-year-old Janowitz was upset with his 45-year-old son because he wouldn't help move a television into the yard. December 26, son, 26 years old, mad over having to make his own lunch. He was in a brawl with his dad in Port St. Lucie. December 4th, Port St. Lucie man arrested after rubbing hamburger on his wife's face. The burger brouhaha began as Boss and his wife started arguing. That's right, the husband's name is Boss. Maybe that's what they're arguing about. And he called her names, and she poured soda on his hamburger, and he rubbed the hamburger on her face and started throwing food. And then this, and I wonder, these are all, I wonder if it's all the same people in Port St. Lucie. But, and then December 3rd in Stewart, Stewart man arrested for swearing at his preacher during the church service. Don't even think about it. But, uh, you know, the forgiveness and mercy and grace, that greases the wheels of a relationship and a family. We have to have that. Sometimes we're not talking about forgiving the accumulation of minor irritations or annoyances. We may be talking about something much more serious than that. And I don't want to minimize anything that anyone's gone through. Some people have gone through some traumatic hurts and pains and suffering, injustices, and they're genuine at the hands of others. And sometimes we may wonder, can God realistically expect me, would he expect anyone to forgive what she did or to forgive what he did? So, as we continue here, let's look at the third thing that we learn here, what Jesus teaches about forgiveness. And that is that God exercises big forgiveness. God exercises big forgiveness. Now we get into the first part of the story that you saw here in the sermon bumper. Matthew 18, 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who'd borrowed money from him in the process. One of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife and children and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged, Please be patient with me. I'll pay it all. And then his master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave his debt. The striking thing in this story is the debt. It's the size of the debt. It's huge. Millions of dollars in the New Living Translation. Literally, it says 10,000 talents of silver. So a talent is a measurement of silver like a, a pound would be. 10,000 talents of silver would be like 375 pounds of silver. And that's, that, that was just an inconceivable amount at that time. It's like the, that's the gross national product of the nation of Israel. That's like somebody saying to you, you're on the hook for the national debt of America. What's that? Anybody know what that is? It's $27 trillion. It's bumping up $28 trillion. I guess in a way, you are on the hook for the national debt, and we all are. But if you had to pay all that off, I mean, you just know that's not going to happen. Well, what does, that, what does that amount represent in the story? The debt, that huge amount represents our sin debt to God. That's our sin debt to God. The king is God, we're the servant, that's our sin debt. This whole business of forgiveness, Jesus puts it in even more stark terms in Luke 17, 4. He says to Peter, even if someone sins against you seven times in one day, and seven times comes back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now, what was my first point? 
Thank you. Very good. We struggle with forgiveness. And what I meant, the first point was we struggle with forgiving other, other people. But here's the flip side of that. Sometimes we struggle with the idea of God forgiving us. Right? Are we, you know, are we really convinced in our heart God has forgiven us all of our sin? That's why some people are absolutely terrified to die. Because theoretically we believe that maybe, but we know when we die we're going to stand before God in heaven and has he truly forgiven us all of our sin? If I, were to go, if I were to sin against God seven times in one day and seven times repent, would God forgive me? Some people would say, are you kidding? I mean, that cannot be genuine, authentic repentance or you wouldn't be sinning against him time and time and time again. Well, maybe we've underestimated the depth of our sinfulness. Who was it that asked the question, by the way, that we're studying this morning? How many times should I forgive my brother? Who asked that question? It's Peter, that's right. Now, let me show you something you may not have noticed before. I don't, have all, I don't have slides for these next four scriptures. But in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus has just told his disciples, he's, he's about to get in trouble with the authorities. And when that happens, all 12 are going to abandon him. He says, you're all going to abandon me. And you remember how Peter responded? Matthew 26, 33, Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Even if I have to die with you, I will, I will never deny you. Now, did Peter keep that promise? No, no, not if you know the story. He did not. In fact, Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to deny you even know me. Then they left the upper room and they went into the, the garden where Jesus wanted to pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. And he said, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. What he meant, stay here, stay awake, and pray with me and pray for me. Then he went off a little ways to pray. Now, did Peter and James and John stay awake and pray with Jesus? No. They promptly fell asleep. And then in Matthew, still, all these are in Matthew 26. In verse 40, he comes back, he wakes him up. And he says, Peter, specifically, couldn't you keep watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray. So you will not give in to temptation. The spirit is willing, the body is weak. Then he went off to pray. Did Peter stay awake? No. He fell asleep again. And then Jesus came back. He's about to wake him up. He said, never mind, here comes the mob. And the mob showed up. And we read in verse 56, at that point, all the disciples deserted him and fled. And then in verses 69 through 75, we have the account where Peter was challenged by a servant girl, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And he said, no, I don't even know the man three times. Now, in case you're keeping count, that's seven times that Peter sinned against Jesus in one day. He could have just as easily have phrased his question to Jesus this way. Jesus if I sin against God seven times, seven times in one day, and each time repent, will God forgive me? And Jesus would have said, not just seven times, 77 times, or seven times, 70. Peter, you cannot out the grace of God. Now, I know in some people's mind, well, hold off, preacher, don't, don't preach that too strongly. Are people going to go out and take advantage of the grace of God? I don't know. I don't know. But this is what I see right here. You cannot and you have not outsend the grace of God. 
You know, some of us with the addictive sins, there's all kinds of addictions. There's alcohol addiction, you know, chemical addictions, narcotics. There's dopamine. There, there may be addictions, the shopping addictions, spending addictions, binge watching on TV, all kinds of ways we medicate. Everybody's got a besetting sin, we call them. And sometimes, maybe we feel like this. We come before God and say, God, it's me again. Same old thing. If you could hear God respond, it might sound something like this. Oh, have you been here before? As far as the east is from the west, God separates us from our sin. God exercises big, big forgiveness for us. So what are we saying about forgiveness today? We struggle with it. Jesus stretches it. God exercises it. And then finally, grace obligates our forgiveness of others. I'm not going to read the whole part of the second part of the story, but verse 33. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven, and he said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt, but you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you? Now, what's going on here? If I understand what the Bible is teaching, it's this. There are two ways of relating to God. These two ways are diametrically opposed. There is law and there is grace. And everybody is relating to God in one of these two ways. Not three ways, there's not one way. It's either law of grace for, or grace for everybody. And what we have here, and what this, this man is called the unjust servant in this story. And the unjust servant, we have a man who's relating to his king, who represents God, in terms of law. And God lets us choose which way we're going to relate to him. But we know he's a legalist, not a grace person, because of what he says and what he does. What he says is, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Now, who is he kidding? We're talking about 10,000 talents of silver. We're talking about 375 you know, pounds of silver to the guy who makes a dollar a day, and that dollar goes to all of his own needs. He's never going to, you can give him all the time in the world, you can give him a thousand lifetimes. He's never going to pay this back. What he should have said was, I'll never pay this back. I throw myself on the mercy of the court. But he says, no, nah, I'll pay it back. And the king forgave him the debt, but he doesn't have a proper appreciation because of his hubris and his pride, he doesn't even realize the magnitude of that debt. His mindset is, okay, well, he, he forgave me that debt, but you know, I was going to pay it off anyway. I would have had it paid off before too long. And then he goes out and he starts acting like a debt collector to those who are in debt to him. That's a law mindset. If we translate it to us, it's the mindset that says, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I, yeah, Jesus died for me, but he, not a, I didn't need it as much as a lot of other people do because I'm pretty good. On the goodness scale, I'm somewhere between Chris Pratt and Tim Tebow. Pretty good. And when I die, I'm going to go to heaven because that's where all the pretty good people go. Go to heaven. God owes me that. I hear this all the time at funerals, you know. Oh, she was a good person. She's going to heaven. He was a good man. He's going to heaven. Well, they may very well be going to heaven, but not because she was a good person or he was a good man. That's not 
how it works. That's law. The grace mindset looks at God not as a debt collector, but a bankruptcy judge. And comes before God and says, look, I don't have a, a prayer. I don't have a chance. If you treat me the way I deserve to be treated, and if you give me what I've earned, then I'm lost. The only chance I have, judge, is if you treat me the opposite of what I deserve. And you give me the opposite of what I've earned. I throw myself on the mercy of the court. And God in grace says, I forgive your debt. And at that point, we're working for the bankruptcy judge, not the debt collector. God discharges our debt, and He discharges the debt of everyone who is indebted to us. Our job is not to go out and collect debt. Now, hey, you, you dared to sin against me? Well, you know, you're going to pay. Hey, I'm sorry it's not good enough. You've got to earn your way back into my good graces. Oh, if you didn't even bother to apologize and say, I'm sorry, well, I'm going to cut you off and treat you like the enemy that you are. Now, that's law. We're grace. We've thrown ourselves on the mercy of the court. And now our job is, as God's representative is just to discharge people's debts against us. I had a friend in Orlando who had a million-dollar debt. Jim, he's a business owner. He had a partner. His partner defrauded him, left him holding the bag, all the debts. And it was a million-dollar debt. And he said to me, he said, Steve, you know how long it takes to pay off a million dollars? I said, no. He said, you can't do it. I'll never pay this off. I'll die in debt. If I had known then what I know now, I would have said, Jim, why don't you declare bankruptcy? He said, no, I, I'm too proud to do that. I don't think a Christian should declare bankruptcy. I would have said, Jim, as a Christian, you've already declared bankruptcy. That's the definition of being a Christian, is to declare spiritual bankruptcy before God. Now, the problem with bankruptcy is pride. It's hard to go before a bankruptcy judge and humble ourselves and say, I've been irresponsible. I don't have the means. I cannot pay my debts. I need your help. And that's the problem with a lot of people when it comes to those who sin against us and the way we view our relationship with God. They've never seen themselves in this position where we are bankrupt and on God's welfare spiritually. That means we've got to humble ourselves. And Jesus said, unless you become one of the, like one of these little children and humble yourself, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We're never more like the heart of God than when we forgive other people's sin debts to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this morning we come remembering as Christians that we have thrown ourselves on your mercy. And that without your grace and your mercy, we don't have a prayer. We don't have a chance. We don't want justice. <laughs> We don't want you to give us what we've earned, and we don't want you to treat us like we deserve. We want the opposite of all of that. We want mercy and grace, and we thank you for it. And we recommit ourselves this morning to discharging all the debts against us, treating others as you've treated us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us.
In Jesus' name, amen.